Welcome to the SLU Podcast, where capital and innovation meet the Permian Basin. Hey guys, this is your host Tim Powell, SVP of the Americas for Oil and Gas Council and advisor to the SLU Enterprise. Today we are joined by Mark Samuel, chairman of the SLU Enterprise. During the episode, Mark talks about his 30 plus year career at Rothschild Bank in Europe and how his experience in asset structuring is helping fuel the execution of the SLU marketplace. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Mark has to say. Mark, good morning. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Uh, thank you, Tim. So um, I'm very glad to be with you this morning and thanks for your, uh, your support. Absolutely. So before we jump into your career and to Escandia and to the SLU Enterprise, just a, a quick background on who you are, where you grew up, where you live now, and then we'll get into your career in finance. Um, so I'm, I'm French. I spent my childhood in the French Alps and I've uh, been educated as an engineer at Ecole Polytechnique in, in Paris. We majors in advanced mathematics and physics. And so you, you're trained as an engineer. Um, your career has been mostly with Rothschild on the finance side. So what led you to get into finance? Yeah, you're right. You're right. I spent 30 years in the banking industry and uh, mostly in, with Rothschild Group in Europe. I starting actually uh, with the capital market and risk arbitrages. Uh, that's that's where the mathematical models were very very demanding, and then that's why I joined the, the career, starting on this capital market stuff. And since then, I've done a couple of uh, a couple of other activities, but always linked with the financial engineering and structuring. Yeah, so let's just walk through that, and just as so everyone has kind of a timeline and, and a reference point. So, you you start with Rothschild in the late eighties walk through the evolution because I think what's really interesting and in how you fit into the SLU story is, you know, all, all your experience and the different hats you wore in your career from a finance perspective. And a lot of the things that are looking to be executed for the SLU, you've done in some way, shape or form in different industries, right? Yeah. So I, I can guide you, guide you exactly through uh, what I've done with my Rothschild year. So starting with the equity capital market, and the risk arbitrage and um, as well m a structuring because a lot of uh, securities and instruments have been dealt with m a then I moved to the uh, new product division broadchilds which was at that time comprised a lot broad range of uh, guaranteed funds index assets, and those type of uh, of solutions are quite innovative to provide for to investors investors which were either uh, high net worth individual so um, for the private banking side of Rothschild or uh, pension fund insurance company uh, banks other banks for the institutional uh, investors it worked well so we we had the uh, green light from the mother company to um, and the family to set up a dedicated um, subsidiary from Rothschild. And I, I was the founder and the CEO of that uh, entity uh, for seven years uh, that promoted basically uh, what we call the structured products, which are a combination of assets, derivatives, uh, legal and tax structure based in, the, in Europe, in US, in Asia, and uh, addressed to a broad range of investors that like to, have, to be invested and to have a certain profile of risk reward. So that's my, that's my uh, specialty, I would say, my expertise. 
and uh, I've done this um, some time. And then uh, I moved to the, uh, to the bank itself, to management of the bank. I was in charge of finance, uh, capital market, innovation, and as well the international development. So I, um, I was in charge of opening a couple of uh, new, uh, new entities and new subsidiaries, and uh, especially multiple initiatives, including uh, Hong Kong, and mainland China, for example, which are quite interesting and challenging. And uh, ultimately, um, I, I, you know, I've, I've been into the executive board of the bank and I become the CEO of the bank. Phenomenal. Yeah. And, and just kind of giving a, a timeline to all that. So early 90s to really late 2000s. And this is what's relevant to the SLU is, is really asset structuring, right? And uh, bringing together different types of investors and giving them different products to invest in. And that and we'll we'll tie that in later, but that's significant. And then just your exposure to different businesses, and and you mentioned that on the tax structuring side as well, right? Exactly, we promoted corporate tax solutions between the U.S. and Europe. So you know, um, one of the as well of the of the structuring, and especially for the many products. Well, very good. So now you retire from Rothschild in 2014 and you become chairman of Escanda Energy Operating and Technology Enhanced Oil, IEO and TEO, both entities that Stéphane Lemoine runs. How did you meet Stéphane? It goes back to your early days and uh, in the 80s at, at Rothschild, you guys worked together a little bit. Did you stay friends over that time? How did you reconnect? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we, we uh, Stéphane spent a couple of time of his early years in Rothschild and we met at that time, it was like 30 years ago. We stay connected because he moved after this to uh, entrepreneurship and I follow various enterprises since then, being um, sometimes personal shareholder as well. And after I left Rothschild, then we uh, well, I met, met a couple of people and, uh, and, and Stéphane again. So it was in 2015, 16. And, uh, and so uh, we, uh, we put this company together uh, as founder and shareholder and raised our money and uh, we started the business. Since the beginning, we had in mind the fact that the goal was not only to, to raise funds and operate, but as well to develop the broad range of, of services and solutions uh, into the energy sector. So the way the, uh, the group has been structured is, is to put together a um, holding company in the UK, the one uh, Stephen and I are shareholder to, and, uh, and from this developed initiatives. The first one was TEO, Technology Enhanced Oil, which is a PLC in the UK, and the idea was to raise funds through this PLC in order to buy assets and uh, for the investors to be exposed to the oil and gas industry, but as an asset owner and as an asset owner only. So with no, no exposure on the, either on the HR or either on the liability on the oil and gas industry. So the way we're structured, we structured this is two subsidiaries for the mother company at the beginning. So the one, the first one, T Technology Enhanced Oil PLC as a asset owner funded by pension funds. And the second one was the operator, Iskandia Energy Operating Inc., so a Texas-based license operator that operates the, uh, the assets, but potentially as well other third-party assets. And just to give everyone some background, so Iskandia acquires a, a small mature field in Corsicana, Texas. I think it was around 2000, 
14, 15. It originally was supposed to be a technology company that did services. But then, the, like you said, you set up these entities to then acquire the assets and operate them themselves. And these are mature field operations, and you're using a series of EOR technologies to enhance production. Uh, I think that's important to, to mention that because TEO is raising money from pensions. So one, you know, how are you able to do that? And European pensions, nonetheless, the environmental and the ESG uh, headwinds are, are much stronger in Europe than they are in North America. They're picking up momentum everywhere. But you were able to raise ESG capital for oil assets. So can you explain that? And then also, why did you think pensions would be interested in this? And why the entity to have them own direct into an asset, but not into a company? Explain that because that's speaking to your experience and understanding the appetite for pensions and the structures that they need and and really meeting the needs of the market and, and marrying it with an opportunity in oil and gas, correct? Yes, so I will start with your second point, which is the, um, the investors are investing directly into those type of assets. You know, I left my banking years with the, the firm conviction that there is room for, for channeling attractive investment opportunity, which would be operated directly to the institutional investors somewhere outside of the standard banking distribution or the private equity model. That's my, my conviction, and because I, I've seen this uh, as a trend going to the market in Europe, at least, most of these investors were looking for direct assets investment and not going through the investment fund or asset management world, and especially for the fixed income part of their portfolios. And uh, and so if you have if you have assets that can generate cash flow, and that's completely eligible and qualified for those type of investors, this is this is the case for uh, real estate, of course, but this is the case as well for these new infrastructure deals where you have a tangible assets that operated by a body, by contracts, and uh, that can generate um, income stream. And in order to replicate or to, to uh, putting together an, an equivalent stream of return interests, the way a bond can do. But the bond market has been so, uh, I mean, so, so purchased and, and so uh, crowded that the yields are returning today are quite low. So definitely investors are looking for something else, new asset classes. And if it can be backed by tangible assets, that's even better. So the, the, the magic question is uh, tangible, tangible assets, real assets uh, operating directly. So no intermediary layers like uh, management fee or whatever and returning cash flows which are not capitalized but distributed. This scorecard basically or this filter does apply perfectly if you own an oil and gas property and you have a third party operated it as a working interest owners or royalty owners actually. So that's, that's, that's the way we, we put and we sell this to the investors and so back to your first point of course Oil and gas industry, fossil energy is, the, um, is today uh, under pressure from everybody uh, because of the uh, Paris climate agreements. And, and, uh, and so the way we put this together in order to convince pension funds in Europe, which are quite sensitive to these ESG issues, is to explain that we're going to, to use innovative disruptive technologies in order to reduce 
the ESG print and the footprint for the same volume of barrel produced, meaning, for example, that we decided not to drill, but to go to mature oil field in order to extend the life of the, of the reservoir instead of, uh, of going and, uh, and drilling and completing new wells. We decided not to frack. We decided to, uh, to save water and, and, and chemicals. And then this green angle, coupled with nice texts worldwide that we have put our find and, and used as an expert, put us in a very nice position for the, for the pension market in Europe, especially because there's two, there's two kinds of investors, actually, and some of them in Europe, some of them are definitely excluding oil and gas, everything which is fossil related. That's one. Some, well, that's half of the market, I would say, or maybe one third of the market. But the, the next uh, two thirds are definitely trying to be uh, what we call an impact player or impact investor, uh, looking for, for some, uh, some uh, enterprises and backing some enterprising initiative that can make the difference. And basically, what uh, TEO has provided to these investors is an impact player can, that can make a difference and pioneer best practices and high standards. And this is why since the beginning, we have assessed our carbon footprint and, uh, and doing some ESG reporting for the investors. That's really interesting. I think one of the main punchlines of that and the takeaways is that if you can present your oil and gas investment opportunity as something that's environmentally friendly and responsible from an operational standpoint on that asset going forward, right? What you do with it after that point, you can raise money from these types of investors. I think that's a lesson learned that it should be taken by the industry. And it's, it's brilliant. It's phenomenal. And I think there's tons of upside that can come from that. And and we'll we'll tie that in too on how the SLUs will, will be financed in the future and the angle for sure. So now, so that's a great overview of IEO and TEO. Thanks for that, Mark. Let's fast forward. This is kind of early 2019. Stefan, Michael, and Eric, and the rest of your team start to kick around this idea for something called the super location unit, the SLU. I'd love from your perspective, when it first got brought to you and your thoughts on it and, and how the, the idea was really incubated over the last few years. Well, uh, it has been uh, looking at the market. You know, I have a, for the group I'm doing, I'm doing the chairman. And uh, so I'm, as well, uh, I'm in supervising the finance and the value proposal for the investors. But as well, I, I spent some time, less than one year in, in Houston to start up the company. So, um, so I know a little the market. And uh, I've, I've always been very impressed by the way uh, in Texas, impressed by the, the capacity to, of course, to, to leverage the, the industry and as well, uh, but less uh, actually impressed by the fact that there's only little, little uh, room for uh, innovation because the pack basically is, is doing what everybody is doing, which is great when it works, but when it's, it's more challenging as it is today, uh, there's, a, there's a huge teams to find a way or, or, or a solution in order to, uh, to overcome this. So looking for that, we, uh, we have seen year after year the balance sheets of your operator declining in terms of, of quality and, and, and scoring and um, payment tests and everything and liquidity, and especially because this, uh, this undeveloped 
properties were grounded into the balance sheets of both EMPs and uh, definitely it was detrimental for the, the cash flow generation for the all ratios, including the equity to debt ratios or the return ratios. And uh, those grounded inventories undeveloped have, uh, basically had no value for the, for the market, especially for Wall Street, where most of the operators have purchased this for billion in order to secure the further development of their company. So that's that was the, the, the starting point uh, to discuss regarding this, how we can handle this, how we can, how we can work on this. And so the first idea was to say, okay, uh, why would be as those assets, uh, those properties into balance sheets of the operator, I mean, cannot bring some value, cannot be uh, evaluated some value uh, beyond the SEC rules. And so in order to do so, we discussed with, the, uh, in, uh, with auditors, we discussed with the financial players. And the idea behind this is either there's a, um, there's, you have to stick to the SEC rules or ever to, uh, to build some kind of external benchmark or reference and bring, and bring a market in such case, of course, those assets could be evaluated at least, uh, could have a value recognized by, by the analysts, recognized by the market, recognized by the investors. So the idea was definitely at the beginning to, to bring value to those uh, grounded uh, properties. And to do so, we, uh, we, well, we put together um, a plan, which was the fact that in order to do so, we need to have a, uh, a standard. Otherwise, you know, it's not comparable. Otherwise, you cannot uh, bring the market together. So that was the beginning of what we, have, what we call the SLU standards, put together the conditions in order to, uh, to build a marketplace for those undeveloped properties and bring uh, into this marketplace, of course, the EMPs to provide such, uh, such uh, properties, such super locations, but as well, the investors. And so being a team with a combined, a combined view of what could be uh, the uh, ENP angle, but what could be as well the investor angle, and not only the US one, but the international ones, we can, we put together those standards and, uh, and the condition of standardization to find the best balance between those two constraints or those multiple constraints and put this uh, marketplace together. So I remember um, when Stefan moved over with Karin to Houston, I think it was January 2019. Um, I had met Stefan before through our business in, in Europe, but he came to a dinner I was hosting. We sat next to each other and he was one month into the country and, you know, uh, he was moving to Houston to help build out of Scandia. And uh, you guys had done that transaction with Noble Energy several months earlier, where you acquired some of their, their shallow right assets in the Permian for a dollar. And you were essentially operating the existing wells to hold the production, to yep. give Noble the option to drill the deep rights in the future. And do you remember the early days, Mark, of uh, DRAP, the deep rights uh, acreage pool? That was the... Yep the original idea of the SLU. And I'm sure you were very involved in that because the original idea was to raise a massive fund uh, of money to then go out and, and buy these properties and acquire the shallow rights and then operate yep. them on behalf of the shale players. And then they would give them the option to hold these assets on their balance sheet without the risk of them expiring so that they could drill them when they had the, the capital. 
So that was kind of the original idea, right? Of going back to what you said, okay, there's this conundrum in the market. You have the best basin in the world, the Permian Basin, that's essentially proven and delineated multiple benches. And the challenge is the, in the acreage consolidation wave, these companies to develop these massive inventories that there isn't enough capital in the system right now to develop. And when the when Wall Street shifted and said, we don't really care about how much inventory you have anymore. We just want cash flow. Now, all of a sudden, you have all this inventory in the balance sheets that are almost acting as a as a negative versus a positive, right, for these companies. And so that was what you were kind of referring to. So real quick, mentioning on the, the early days, the DRAP, the DRAP concept, and how that those dialogues went, and then, and then we can get into how the idea morphed and evolved. Yeah, you're right. The the DRAP concept at the beginning was a was a to um, to purchase uh, either assets or uh, at least uh, operatorship these shallow rights of the undeveloped properties and and therefore uh, keep the leases alive by the help by production principle, especially in Texas. Uh, Elbel production of the uh, of the underlying this is a good idea, of course, for the ENPs, but it doesn't solve the actual issue, which are the funding of the of the uh, of the drilling and completion operations, and uh, the fact that their balance sheet are anyway grounded and as negative as you said, instead of a positive by those properties. So. DRAP doesn't work if the uh, properties themselves of the NPs of the balance of the NPs disappear. So that's that would be additional services. But that's why we we shift uh, our priority and, this, and decided that the main priority is not to build another fund, but to bring them to bring together a marketplace where multiple investors can invest where multiple contributors of ENPs can put their super location together and of course uh, without having to sell them but and uh, but we have some conditions some standards and so on together so I would say that the, the, the SLU marketplace is the mother of a lot of services behind this including the DRAP which is one but including as well, for example, managing all the tails after DNC, which is another one. I mean, basically, uh, the option value is what really kind of created the idea to create the SLU marketplace, right? Because at the end of the day, you said DRAP really only would have been servicing one part of the solution. The major problem was accessing capital to further develop this inventory. And now in a, in a lower oil price environment that we're in today, some of that inventory isn't economic until $55 oil, $60 oil, $65 oil, but it has some sort of value, but the market's giving it zero value. So, you know, Stefan's background as a trader, your background as a banker, Michael's background as a trader, you guys start to see, okay, if we can create a new marketplace and create a new asset class and just to tie it together for everyone so they can understand the SLU is the asset itself, the super location units, basically, you know, standardized assets in the in the Permian Basin. Those, if you create a marketplace where those can be freely traded, now you can start to assign value to them, even though in a in a traditional MA market and, and public markets, they're not being assigned value in the balance sheet today, that'll unlock some capital for companies to drill and develop their assets. So let, let's get into now forming a new marketplace, forming a new asset class, 
your background in that because that's your bread and butter, Mark. You've done it in other industries. You've seen it in other industries. Stefan told me, you know, for instance, you created one of the largest wine marketplaces in Europe. So a personal example there, let's just spell out what that looks like. And my clients always tell me there's no such thing as new ideas. There's just old ideas uh, repackaged, right? In a different time. So exactly. this is a perfect example of that. Walk through some of the other marketplaces and new asset classes that have been developed over the last decade or two so that people can see the similarities and and can then envision it in the slu playing out going forward so i will i will start with the uh the objective or the, the goal to to get this uh, undeveloped uh, market and how the slu can solve one of the main issue of the ENPs or the industry today it's always possible today to, to sell or try to sell uh, undeveloped properties. Yes, there's, there's, a, there's a market for this, but this market is basically between operators. And um, and, and today, today, speaking, this is you know November 2020, that market doesn't exist. Exactly. Buying undeveloped acreage in the Permian, for the most exactly. part, it's non-existent, right? It's closed, and if it's not closed, it's, it, it, you, you get paid by, by equity. So this is a merger principle, but in, in no case, it's in hard cash. So there's, there's no market for this. So this, this, those, uh, those uh, properties are, are no value because there's nobody interested by this. Uh, stating that for the non-op investors, why should they buy something like this when they do not know when it will be developed and if it will be developed and even if the leases and this will be kept. So it will be uh, it, it's such a challenge. So people are, are, are stuck with the, uh, with the non-op rights, and, uh, but no new investors or new, new non-specialists of the oil and gas industry will, will come in because it's too risky and, and the fundamentals are not here. So that's, so that's a huge challenge. So the, the total idea behind this is to say, okay, let's try to put those inventories uh, fungible in terms of a marketplace. Of course, none of them are not always the same. So meaning that we have to compare one to the other. Uh, that will be and compare the quality and could be of size. So that will be the uh, Ryder Scott rating proposed. And then be sure that rules apply between the non-op and the operator on the standard way. So that will be uh, SLU JOA, which will be standardized. And where people can buy and sell those uh, potentially um, stack into those uh, super location in an efficient way without going to the court and uh, and get the titles and so on. So that's the principle of the super location entities where you are buying and selling securities and not tackling with the underlying leases at the at the court, so that's 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 the, the mechanism in in order to to uh, to allow something which will be possible for the marketplace. But still, okay, uh, we are into this situation, so we know that at one point this superlocation will be developed, and uh, if it commits to to develop this in in five or six years or ten years, I don't I don't mind. And but at least we know that at one point there will be a commitment to develop this 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 uh, underlying superlocation, meaning as well that the uh, long-only investors, the one who are non-op investors, the one who are, who are buying those property in order to put money at work, will not be called by CapEx and by the IFIs of the operator before the starting date of the development plan. And if the starting, starting plan is starting in five years, for example, from now, why should I position myself today in order to uh, and buy some, some of those securities units of this um, underlying lease if 
are starting to, to, to be called for CapEx and, and to receive some cash flow behind this in five years' time. It's too late. It means too long to me. So Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point. So just to use a hypothetical example, let's just say Exxon or Oxy have these super location units in their portfolio. In today's market, if you wanted to invest in the upside development of something that would get developed in five years, you have to invest in the stock of Oxy and you will indirectly be exposed to operating costs, right? The SOU is carved out, so it's still operated by Oxy, but it's you don't have exposure to Oxy's main cost of business. And so this kind of goes back to why we took some time to spell out TEO and IEO. TEO is really the SLU, isn't it? And IEO is every Permian operator in the Permian Basin, correct? Exactly. Actually, it is an unbundling of the uh, of the role of ENP and, and the split between the properties themselves, asset owner, and the role of operator. Of course, today, you most of your operator are as well the main stakeholder of the property. So that's a, that's a mixed model. But if you are an owner, definitely you would like to see this model in which uh, the splitting between the role of operator and asset owner. Otherwise, you are just a minority, uh, non up not consent in, in the lease. Of course, this is a very limited market. So the goal is to, is to make the conditions uh, so that investors, which are not professional in the oil and gas industry, may come and may see the value of uh, investing into the, uh, the capex into the development and receive some cash flow behind this and then consider this uh, this investment exactly the same way they are considering today real estate or infrastructure so it does it does explain the fact that there's a there's a huge appetite potentially for investors in, uh, at the development stage of the uh, superlocation uh, unit. But those guys will not be uh, or potentially not so interesting by being only investor into developed properties for years. So that was a challenge part as well. So this first phase, phase one, where the the underlying lease is not undeveloped and where, uh, so you have years of only being stakeholder into undeveloped property. This phase, uh, which is the challenging phase today for the operator, may find as well some investor and market players. So that's why we think that the, the traders and the people who want to be exposed to the oil and gas market without being called for development, so the in-developed part, the SLU itself, will be very attractive as well and why we, we put together this concept of time value. If we, if I have a, if I am an investor, I mean by a trader, for example, I know that this uh, operator is putting a, a super location together with a rating by Ryder Scott about the volume of undeveloped barrels underneath and, and the quality uh, attached to this. I'm pretty interested by buying this as, as, a, as, a, as a price. For what? Because firstly, the market can go up. So I'm just trading, buying and selling those assets. And two, I can make as well a nice arbitrage with the forward curve of the WTI, for example, and buying this. So the underlying value of my SLU is, is some, somewhere at the floor with positions of the traders. I will organize a market between those traders and, and, the, and the potential seller of these units on the SLU. And these potential sellers are, of course, the operator. So the operator can putting those uh, those uh, superlocation into into the marketplace can meet investors and potentially find a market to sell those or part of its rights 
to the market at, at good price and, uh, and then get some cash to do something else. At one point where they like to develop after a couple of years, then they will meet, uh, meet again some other investors, which are the long-run investors willing to put that money at work. So we're bringing together actually two kind of market, the market for undeveloped SLUs themselves, for example, the first five years before development. And this market is a completely new market with a time value for this and with traders which will be interesting by this. We know because we, again, I will come back to the fact that um, we have an experience to have put this together for other assets classes. And two, another phase, which will be the uh, another bucket of investors, which will be investors, long-run investors willing to put their money at work. Definitely these two angles and these two buckets of investors, which are could be new investors for the SLU uh, and for the ENP market, especially in Texas, which has not ob- ob- mean compulsory Wall Street oriented, so it could be somebody else. And uh, those investors will bring liquidity to the market and to the operator. And um, we know this because either Michael Bonnell and me for uh, in the ICE years, when he was, uh, it was at the origin of the ICE market, which today is the largest market for, uh, for me for energy sector, and especially for derivatives mainstream but as well, I, um, I have experience in Europe to have put this in, in other, other class, asset classes. So the goal is to put, the, to put an asset together, a portfolio of assets, and then from this, on top of this, organize the market. So if we do this for wine, we can do this as well for um, art pieces, which is, of course, another, another story with cutting, for example, paintings, uh, master paintings in pieces in order to do funds. So if we, if we succeeded to do it with uh, wine, with piece of art, with credit, with the um, infrastructure, with, of course, real estate, with uh, leases on, on equipment, on, on, on cars, on credit card, and so on and so on. There's absolutely no reason why the same technologies and the same marketplace could not be put together to oil and gas industry, especially to these tangible rights of undeveloped properties with qualified volume of oil in the, underneath in the Permian basins, where we know pretty much that do have oil for sure. And there's no doubt about the fact that the formations underneath are bringing their, their BOEs as a, as a collateral of those assets. No, I mean, 100%. It's, it's so fascinating just to taking the playbook of other sectors and trying to apply it here. Um, and, and I think the upside is very exciting. And just kind of a recap, right? So you've mentioned Ryder Scott a number of times for everyone listening. It's essentially the Moody's, right? It, it'll be the Moody's of the SLU market, just the rating agency. And yeah. Yep. And and just to dumb it down very very quickly, you talk about you know the traders getting involved in the SLU market that are on the SLUs are undeveloped. It's really just trade the SLUs are securitized. You're trading them, and you're saying you know I, I'm I'm going to trade this, expecting them to get developed in the future when oil hits sixty dollars or seventy five dollars or whatever. And so when you just boil it down like that, it makes sense. There is some sort of value there. It's just a time value money arbitrage, like like you had referenced. The market's yeah, it- giving those assets zero value today, which makes no sense. Billions of dollars were deployed to get the assets. Value doesn't just in the flick of a of a switch just evaporate. So that's what you guys are trying to unlock. It's it's fantastic. And then that helps create liquidity for EMP companies in a market where those assets are basically dead and stuck in the in the balance sheet that they get, then get re-diverted towards the drill bit, correct? Which then further leads to development. SOUs will start to get developed. They'll start to have cash flow. And then 
phase two will come in. And let's finish on this, Mark, because I think this is also very exciting as well, because your traditional investors right now have been your, your public equities, you know, the publicly traded companies, and then private equity firms. And you, we had started this episode, you had talked about since the, the financial crisis in 2008, there's been a slow shift for investors to move away from fund investing, i.e. into private equity funds, and then to go direct. At first, they started doing co-investments alongside PE funds to get access to deal flow, but there's a strong appetite to go direct into the asset now. And so unlocking insurance LPs, pensions, endowments, you name it, to go direct into SLUs, that opens up a whole world of different capital. Just explain why the SLU itself is investable for those types of entities versus them going into the, the stock of, of Exxon or of Oxy, just again, to use a hypothetical. Well, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious today uh, because the, uh, the volatility and the, uh, and, the, and the background around the equity of those uh, majors are, are, are very, very sensitive and there's plenty of, of factors that can, that can impact definitely the value on this. And, and so, of course, there's, um, without speaking about ESG, we, we back to the ESG uh, at one point, but without speaking about ESG uh, principle, the, the, the volatility of the, of the, uh, of the sector today, equity-wise, is too uh, important and too, uh, and, and too sensitive in order to be put into uh, um, in a long-term portfolios, for example, for pension funds. Again, pensions, where the, where all the big money is, I don't speak about private equity fund again, about LP's money. So the, the pension money or, 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 the, the, um, or the insurance money. A, those those uh, entities, organizations are basically uh, are fixed income, mainly versus equity because they have to, they have to match their liability and their liability is, is inflation indexes, indices and there's some, some best cash flow to distribute or to, to pay for the liability for the policies and so on and so on. So they need assets which are first stable in price or you know, absolutely not so volatile than Exxon shares, for example, and to return steadily and consistent cash flow over time because they are making their money with interest streams or dividend streams, not with capital gains. So that's why the, the, the investment in equity for both uh, is sometimes very limited. And what they are looking for, uh, I mean, huge investment into funds, I mean, credit funds, for example, or into real assets or everything, which is return, return yield. The, well, I got a question, Mark. So yeah. PEO, the pension money you got from Europe for Escandia's operations in Texas, those are mature field operations. You didn't frack you're not drilling any new wells and you're basically optimizing an existing cash flow stream. <clears throat> so I can wrap my head around that, right? It's something that could be hedged if you wanted to, but that cash flow is already existing. In an SLU phase two that's getting developed, you know, the drop off, the decline of shale wells is quite severe. Is yep. it just after flush production and then, you know, the, this cash flow, it's somewhat predictable based on historical type curves that... Yes, exactly. So if you are into to the development phase and, and your, your, your DNC starting, you do have your capex at the beginning to drill the wells and then you do have your, your, your initial production and then even if there's a huge decline, you get the volume of oil extracted and the value for this. So... The, the, the profile for, for those wells is pretty well known and the type curve, again, are, are a very good benchmark. So 
we know exactly uh, we, how much uh, after the assessment of the of the rating of a Ryder Scott as a rater, rating agency, you know pretty much pretty much what are the volume expected of of oil from well, and uh, and so the, the profile of the cash flow is very easy to assess and to give a PV for this. So those investors will be interesting to fund the capex and then get the the, the revenue profile and revenue stream behind this. So that's that's pretty uh, evident, obvious. And and the and the fact that there's a huge uh, initial production and a huge decline is even better because means meaning that the overall maturity overall maturity of the investment will be shorter. Yeah, no, it's really interesting, right? I mean, you're basically creating a marketplace that has liquidity along the way, so you're going to get the different respective costs of capital and risk appetite participating where it makes sense and giving them an opportunity to come in and out. If you're an EMP company operating in the Permian Basin, if you can then get some some value out of that longer tail stuff, instead of waiting five, 10 years for it to produce out, you can get that capital today reinvested. And there's a different market for that versus a capital gain in an M&A event, like is really the only option today, correct? You can't, you know, for the most part, sell off shares in just a mature production. So that that's super interesting, um, and how it all comes together in the full picture from a from a financing standpoint, for sure. So, so you you just imagine that you have in your balance sheet some currency, which are the SLU undeveloped, and the value of this currency today is zero. It's not recognized. It's not zero per se, but it's, it, it, the market don't don't recognize any value for this. So that's that's the old issue. And to and and tomorrow we are bringing a marketplace that recognize value for the SLU that you have in your balance sheet. So you have a, a portfolio of of currency, no value today, and and uh, and can potentially big value tomorrow. Very simple. Well, excellent, Mark. Thank you for taking the time. I really enjoyed the conversation. I think it's extremely innovative what you guys are working on at Escandia and the SLU. And the definition of innovation is when you bring new perspective to the table. And so I think the SLU team is a perfect example of that. New perspective in terms of careers around the world, exposure to different markets, fresh perspective from trading, from finance, from upstream, from technical, from land. Um, and you guys are all, you're a product of that. And I wish you all the best of luck. I can't wait to see it continue to unfold in the upcoming months and years. Thank you, Sam. All right. Thank you, Mark. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The SLU Enterprise is striving to standardize, commoditize, and monetize oil and gas reserves in the Permian Basin. If you're interested in learning more about how your team can participate in the SLU marketplace, then please email Joe Quiersar, SVP of EMP Industry Affairs at jquoyeser at sluenterprise.com. Thanks and see you next time.